Hello, welcome to CSAP's Science and Policy podcast. I'm Rob Doubleday. This series on science advice and government is brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, which is part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at the University of Cambridge. And today we are talking about how scientists have contributed to UK government decision-making during the COVID pandemic. What are the structures and mechanisms that have drawn science into the decision-making process and what's it been like for the individuals involved? And of course, we're looking ahead to the point at which we'll be able to start to draw lessons from, from what worked well and how this process can be improved and safeguarded into the future, that process of of ensuring that scientific advice is brought in live to help government make difficult decisions. And to address these questions, I'm really pleased to be joined by two friends and colleagues of mine from the University of Cambridge. Julia Gogg is Professor of Mathematical Biology at Cambridge and has been heavily involved uh, throughout the pandemic and is currently still involved in the Specialist Advisory Group on Modelling Pandemics, SPIM, which feeds into the SAGE process. I'm also joined by Sir John Aston, the Harding Professor of Statistics and Public Life, who from 2017 to the end of 2020 was the Chief Scientific Advisor in the Home Office and uh, during the pandemic was also heavily involved in SAGE, Scientific Advisory Group and Emergencies, and advising the Secretary of State in the Home Office. And so we will hear from John about what it was like to be a scientist in government. I would say that both Julia and John here are speaking their individual capacity. They definitely respect that fact that this is an ongoing pandemic. So I wonder if I could start with you, Julia. Your academic discipline looks at understanding, mapping, modelling infectious diseases. How did you first get involved with inputting advice modelling to the UK government during the COVID pandemic? Thanks, Rob. Actually, for me, it goes back before the pandemic. I was part of um, SPY-M in what I guess we now call peacetime. This is a standing group with specialist input on modelling specifically for influenza pandemics that in peacetime sits within the Department of Health. It has a few independent academics on it uh, normally, and I I was one of those beforehand. SPY-M was then stood up into operational mode as it became clear we were in the COVID-19 pandemic. And there was a little sort of confirmational change where we remain attached to DHSC, but we become a group which is then a subgroup of the then stood up SAGE committee. So we fed into SAGE as well. Maybe just to set the scene, I mean, just give people some sense of what you do as a member of SPIM first, in terms of what does SPIM do? What's it been like for you over the last two years? What's your life been like as, as an active member of SPIM? But, but first, in, in simple terms, what, what, what does SPIM do? What SPIM does, I think, has evolved actually quite a lot over the pandemic as we've been feeling our way as to what we can best do, particularly Early on, we, we did a lot, a lot of real-time things, producing the weekly R estimates, producing weekly medium-term predictions, so a sh- very, very short-term forecast, if you like, of what's going to happen with cases and hospitalisations and deaths. And then beyond that, what happened each week was not routine. There would be something particular we'd need to do that week or over those weeks, and we'd focus on it, and that would shift from week to week. But it was 
in broad terms, it was responding to asks that were coming down through SAGE or through, through some government route to spy on his questions and responding to those. So those questions that might come to you, I mean, can you illustrate the kinds of questions that might be? And then how, how does sort of a group of people sitting as SPIAM work out how to respond to those questions? Uh, the questions are varied and diverse, but just to give some sense of what they're like, so I think it's, it is quite hard to imagine from the outside. Sometimes there are very specific long blocks of work. For example, if you think about January 2021, you've got vaccines, we're coming through the alpha wave. How do we unlock from there? So the government is going to want to lift restrictions over time as vaccines are rolled out, but you don't want cases to explode. So there's a very specific task there to first develop ideas behind the roadmap. What will it work if there are stages like this? And then as we go through those stages, we had a, a five-week cycle uh, going through those each time, trying to say uh, where we think we are now compared to where we'd hope to be and what will happen in the next step of unlocking. So sometimes really specific to something happening. I suppose another example like that is when new variants Alpha and then Delta and then Omicron, and then maybe lesser known variants like AY4.2 that appeared within Delta. It's not such a catchy name, is it? And then within Omicron, there's a, a subvariant BA2. We might have a question saying, what do we think this is going to do? What, what's the potential range of things to be concerned about? So sometimes they're very um, specific to what's happening with the, the virus and the pandemic. Sometimes they're more about, you can see what the policy decision they're trying to get to. We went through uh, several phases of should we close schools, should we open schools, should we close schools, should we open schools? And you could see that's what the issues were, but we might be asked more specific questions, such as what would be the difference between having primary schools open and secondary schools closed or vice versa? Can we say anything about what this would mean in terms of the epidemiology? That's very clear. I'm sure we can all relate to some of those questions that you were having to respond to. But what sort of people are working with you on SPY-M? You said that it's, it's unlike there are some academics and some people, some modelers working for government. How do you work collaboratively on, on what are sort of sometimes must be quite challenging modelling questions? They've been challenging questions and they've been challenging timescales and, of course, impossible lack of data. But aside from that, we just have to get on with it. In peacetime, SPY-M was largely Department of Health some public health England, as was people, and then some people in, in academe and some in the intersections of these as well. As we went into COVID, SPIM expanded very, very substantially. We brought in additional research groups that had no links to SPIM before, but we knew them through academic networks, so they became part of SPIM. Even within groups that already represented, maybe further members would come on because they could add additional expertise that was needed. And the membership of SPIM was a little bit dynamic over time, but largely in the direction of growing. Then you have many, many observers in SPIM who are, who are not members of SPIM, but can input to discussions, but generally don't play a, a role in the, the scientific part of the discussion, but can give us uh, information or answer our questions on data sources or, or so forth. And there are many who are just listening. So that's, that's what the cast list for a SPIM meeting looks like. So on, on a given call for a, a main meeting, which for early in the pandemic, there were two of these per week. 
Later on, we settled into a nice, more humane weekly cycle of one a week. A main meeting would be three hours, very carefully managed because we've got to get through an awful lot in those three hours. I mean, that's very helpful because it's it's just giving people a sense of, of what it's like. So who's sitting, you know, roughly like how many people are sitting around that table? And this is this is all happening virtually. Have you ever kind of met as a group in person? Oh, yes. So, of course, pre-pandemic, SPIAM had met in person. The routine meeting was at most once a month in practice. It was more often once every two months. And I was lucky enough to have been on SPIAM long enough to have been to some of those and at least know a little bit of the cast list in particular to have contacts within DHSC. So I knew who I was talking to there in the SPIAM secretariat. Uh, Of course, it's been uh, rather different since pandemic times. And actually, that's one of the things that's been disorientating as an academic within the scientific emergency response is understanding who's who within government. Sometimes we know someone is DHSC, but we don't know exactly their role or how they fit in with someone else. So it's just the world of two utterly different and equally bizarre in different way organisations interfacing with people who don't normally sit at that interface. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many questions that, that flow from that, but that's really, really interesting starting point. So you're giving a picture of, you know, quite rapid meetings twice a week being presented with questions to you that are challenging, that you're that require difficult modelling with not much data, but yet you know you need to respond and you're drawing on colleagues, you're, you're trying to develop new relationships to respond to that. And all in, obviously, a circumstance where we're all sort of trying to make sense of what, what's going on. Before getting into some of the questions, deeper questions, there, I'd like to turn to John, who at this point, John, you are working in government as a chief scientific advisor in the Home Office. How did you first get in involved in in the sort of scientific advisory process for the pandemic and then particularly how did you then see the kinds of work Julie was doing and Spine was doing from as it were inside government? So thanks Rob yes so I think for me again like Julia it starts well before the pandemic I've been in the department for close to two years before things really started to change with the pandemic the role of the CSA is really to try to link science in its broadest possible terms so Uh, natural sciences, physical sciences, biological sciences, data science, but also social science and other sciences into the advice and evidence-making process that goes into making decisions in government. And I've been fortunate enough to do that on a number of different areas within government before the pandemic hit. And for me, it was really useful to have that experience so that when the pandemic hit, we could then draw on that. I think the big difference was that for most decisions in government prior to the pandemic, science had a role that was quite well defined. If you're looking in the Home Office, for example, around crime, then forensics is a big area where there's science involved. And so science advice around forensics is well structured and well developed. And part of my role was to then help translate that science advice from the science itself through to things that were going to have an impact in the advice that needed to go into making any kind of policy decision. The thing that changed with the pandemic was that suddenly science really needed to be part of the whole picture and that almost every decision had some element where science was important. So for me, it was about being able to get the hold of the best science possible, translate that and help ministers, senior officials uh, within the department understand what was going on with the science to help them make the decisions that they would need to make on a policy side. That's really important to note that I'm not an epidemiologist. 
So I'm very fortunate that I'm a statistician, which is you know closely related, but certainly not an epidemiologist. Many science advisors in government were not statisticians or other, you know, were, were much further away from being an epidemiologist, but that's not my role. My role is not to do the science. My role is to translate the science that has been done from the science through to the policy and then vice versa, how to help policy questions be reformulated back into scientific questions. I mean, for the, you know, for the public, for citizens in, in the UK, obviously the government chief scientific advisor, Sir Patrick Valance, and, and chief medical officer for England, Chris Whitty, were very public figures. And, and I think a lot of people became aware that there was this thing called SAGE <laughs> that they were convening and drawing on. What, what was your experience of SAGE as, and, and what kind of proportion of the work you were doing in, in the Home Office kind of connected to SAGE? Well, was it an important part of your role or was it just sort of one among many kind of strands of scientific input that you were working with? So it was very important. So I think it's worth pointing out that SAGE started um, in the sort of January time before uh, the pandemic really hit in the March. And even then it was starting to ask questions that were going to go into policy decisions. So I had sort of two elements to my role One was very much to be part of those SAGE discussions so that I could then help understand how to formulate that back so the Secretary of State and other officials could really understand what was coming out of those SAGE meetings and really understand how the science would then affect the particular policy areas in the Home Office. The other thing was then to use that to help people in the Home Office who were going to have to make decisions, but also the scientists and analysts who were going to have to do Home Office-specific work, make sure that it was consistent with what SAGE was saying, the overall way that the pandemic was going to continue or the evidence that was coming in from all these different areas that was going to be really important in understanding the pandemic, much of that wasn't home office specific, but there were home office specific questions that really could be reframed to draw on the evidence that was coming in from SAGE. So I was responsible for a lot of the science advice that the home office did, but I was also responsible for a lot of the analysis, so the economic advice, the social science advice that was coming in directly from people who worked within the Home Office, making sure that they had access to the SAGE information was equally important so that they could then formulate the work they were doing and make sure that it was consistent with what SAGE was saying. So obviously we heard from Julia about the kind of the the way that SPIEM really kind of responded to the pace of questions that were coming to them and expanded in the, the number of people working on them. How, how did you see the, the work of SPIEM from, from your position? I mean, did SAGE kind of actively pass questions to SPIEM that it wanted asked? And did you then, how, how was then the kind of the work that Julia was doing, how was that feeding into the kinds of things you were seeing? So SPIEM was vital because in some sense, they were the, the eyes of what was happening in the pandemic. Without the numbers and the analysis that was coming out of SPIEM, it would have been impossible to try and understand what the next action should be for particular government departments. So really vital part of SAGE meetings was the input that was coming in from from SPIEM. And then SPIEM would produce reports that were then later published that people could see what the analysis that was happening and what the outputs were. But that information was then feeding in directly into government departments. So the numbers and the information that was coming out of SPIEM was being used on a, I would say daily, but that's probably not true, hourly basis of trying to help that that information be passed into the 
decision-making processes within within the Home Office, from my point of view, but within government departments in general. And the questions that were spying were being asked to address, did you see how those questions were being framed, how they were being kind of prioritised? So I think it was really important that the questions were coming both ways. There were questions that were coming because SAGE needed to know some information because that would allow SAGE to make better advice that would then flow through to government departments. But it was also really important that government departments got to say, well, we really need to understand this because this is going to feed into this policy decision. That would sometimes go directly via SAGE back down to SPYM. Sometimes it would go other routes to SPYM. But in practice, it was really important that policy questions could try to extract the bit that would actually need some epidemiological modelling. And then that would be passed to SPYM, who had the experts to do that. Government departments didn't have epidemiologists on tap who could just sit there and work out these models. SPYM were the driving area that could actually answer some of these questions that were then going to field back into the policy decisions about what you would do and how you would actually frame that in what we would think might happen, often in very short timescales. I mean, Julie, is that how you kind of experienced it? Well, I say obviously. I mean, is it the case that that these relationships and ways of working were kind of being spun up <laughs> as you went along? And, and John's account of it sort of makes good sense. But did it did it feel that sort of sensible as you were working on it? How did it kind of feel from the spy M side of things? I was nodding along to John there because that rings true with my experience. But I guess also sometimes I, as a member of SPYM, would not know exactly where a question had come from. In some sense, that uh, didn't worry me. They were, they were all important, interesting questions. I could see they made sense to be answered. Uh, sometimes I could see, and maybe this was all very unusual because of this nature of this pandemic cutting across so many facets of life, so many different departments. There had to be a little bit of management of where asks came from. It wasn't the case that another ministry could just email SPYM and said, please go do this. There was a little bit of, well, not a little bit, there was an enormous amount of air traffic control happening in DHSC. I, I could see that as a member was happening. I wouldn't always see exactly what that was, but I understood that that was uh, where a lot of the magic was happening of realising uh, which of the asks were just not within our range that we could do something about on the timescales were asked or ever sometimes. And to try and bring that to things that were answerable and were going to be useful to us trying to find that intersection between going to be valuable for government and policy decisions somewhere and within our range of achievable. And John, turning to you now, trying to think about what you would say during this time of, of having to set things up, develop working relationships, you know, new working relationships with scientific advisors, with officials and, and, and with ministers. What do you say, looking back, you can say were lessons that have been learned along the way that you think can are worth highlighting in terms of getting that relationship functioning really well? So I think it's worth pointing out that you know, there has always been science and evidence in decision-making, but in particular at the beginning of the pandemic, there was just very little that was actually known. There was lots of things that people could try to model and make assumptions about, but actual values that people knew that they could put into models were quite rare and that these had to be learned, which makes it difficult to then you know, communicate that in, in a way. I think that what happened was that I think uncertainty was 
difficult to communicate at the start, and there's become a, a, a better understanding of the fact that science doesn't answer everything, but it can be useful in many situations. I think that the relationship between science and policymaking in some areas was really good. In other areas, it was quite new. And I think now most policy areas have had experience of science being involved in their decision-making process. I think that has helped people build a trust and an understanding of what questions science can and can't answer. I think, as Julia said, there are some questions that they will never be able to get an answer from, from a scientific model. That's fine. And helping people understand that, what the limitations are, has been something that I think has really improved over the, the pandemic. I think there is an increasing understanding of how you take information from multiple different sources and put it together. I think that was hard at the beginning when there wasn't really very much information. And it, it's then really even harder to try and put uncertain information from many different sources together. But I think that as the pandemic's gone on, it, we've become better and better at pulling different pieces of information and framing questions in a way that help science potentially give some answers to those questions. And then vice versa, science being able to really help address policy questions that are directly relevant and work out how to frame questions within a scientific context that can then feed back into policy. So I think we've got much better at that. And I think just the relationships are, are as, as they've got become better and better and more and more experienced, people understand how to work together. To echo what Julia said, the relationship with civil servants and the secretariats, and I would particularly pay tribute to the SAVE secretariat, the amount of information and the amount of requests they had to process in often absolutely staggeringly short amounts of time was incredible. So, you know, I gave a, a nice sanitized description of how the process worked. It was happening at, you know, a million miles an hour. And that was really tough on everybody. But the fact that everybody did it with good grace and there was a real acceptance that, you know, these were difficult things to do, but everybody had a shared outcome to try and achieve, which was to try and get the best advice available so that people could make sensible decisions based on that advice is, is something that's really has been incredible from both the academic side and the civil servant side, and indeed ministers who've tried to take that into account. I just want to ask you to reflect on, obviously, there have been times during the pandemic where because the stakes have been so high and the decisions so momentous and lots of uncertainty, where there has been a lot of public scrutiny, a lot of public attention on the role of scientific advisors. And sometimes there have been moments where, you know, if people happen to have one kind of view of what the right thing to do, one, one kind of view, then they might have thought, well, you know, the scientists are the ones we want to read, you know, they're on our side. And then other people might think, no, 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 the scientists are, you know, are, are the problem and we want. So there were moments when public discourse was drawing scientists into the kind of political process as actual kind of agents with decisions, with points of view. As a chief scientific advisor in government, John, I mean, that must, I mean, I'm guessing that must have felt a bit awkward at times. How did you kind of deal with those moments? So it's certainly difficult. I suspect the way I dealt with it was that I concentrated on doing my job, which was to provide independent advice to those who were going to make decisions. And for me, there was two different portions of any decision. There's the time before the decision is made, and then there's the time after the decision is made. 
I am most intent on making sure that there is the best advice available to decision makers before they make the decision, noting that there are many time constraints, which means that we have to absolutely accept that there is going to be some uncertainty in the information that is given. For me, because I had to have some responsibility for science advice that was coming from physical, mathematical science kind of models through to the economic models that were being run within department, et cetera, bringing that together was part of my job, but it was bringing it together in a way that then somebody else could take that decision. And my job was to make sure they had the best information available. And then my job was to step away and let them make that decision. There was then the portion afterwards, which I think was captured well, particularly by SAGE with its publication of the work that it had done, that then allowed people to scrutinize whether us as scientists had provided the right advice. I think it's really important. Science works on the principle of people being able to review what you have done and seeing what works and what doesn't. There was huge amounts of really valuable information came back because people could see what models had been used and understand what had happened and then use that to help build better models or build other ways of doing things. That transparency helps really keep the system going from a scientific point of view. It also helps people understand whether the science advice is the right advice to be going through. For me, that's the only ways that you can deal with these politicization of the process is that you've got to be transparent and open about what what happens after the event because before the event you are purely focused on making sure the best advice goes into those who are making decisions. And Julia, did you ever feel under kind of public scrutiny, public pressure during your contributions to SPIM? <laughs> oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> Many times. There's the more individual to me experience maybe that um I was sometimes on SAGE, and in in particular, I was on SAGE for a meeting in March 2020, when the names of the participants of that meeting ended up in the press in May 2020. And as one of the least experienced in SAGE, it's one of the most junior people on it, but suddenly my name and sometimes my photo were in newspapers. And then I went from being someone who no one in the media would know to contact about anything to being um, besieged and and not always in nice ways, to put it mildly. That was something I had no expectation of before when I joined SPIM in peacetime. And I even think early in the pandemic, I hadn't realised how much we'd be personally targeted. So that that was quite a a shock. The the, the role we had or... should have had or ended up having with public communication is maybe one we should talk about as well. But the other side of that, as you're talking with John, I thought about there's two bits of that is that firstly, all the modelers doing this, particularly in those uh, really tough early days in 2020, were living through all of this as well. We weren't talking about some scientific emergency far away or only affecting some small part of the country. It was very much a lived experience uh, for some. It was extremely personal, losing uh, relatives while they were still working, uh, you know, overnights and things. So it was all, all very, very close. And, well, I hope that's unique among scientific emergencies that I have to deal with in my lifetime. Uh, another complicated side of it, and this is one that we've all had to learn a lot, and I'm, I'm still not comfortable, we've really understood, is that... As members of SPIAM, maybe we couldn't see where things were going next 
Uh, not all members of SPIAM were on, well, very few members of SPIAM were on stage, so we didn't see how those discussions worked or exactly what was happening between the CSAs and then the, the layer that John can describe very well between CSAs and government ministers was something most SPIAMers had no sight of. So occasionally you'd have something happening where modellers, both those on SPIAM and, and the massive teams underneath those in SPIAM who were not on SPIAM, could see something that was troubling them and worrying them. And the human reaction is, we need to shout about this. We need to tell the government they need to do this. And that wasn't our role at all. Uh, we had to very calmly model, be crystal clear on what we knew, what we didn't know, have no prejudgment uh, of what even the policy options would be, but just try and stick purely within our track and hand the best information uh, we could onwards. And that sounds maybe straightforward talking about it now, but in the heat of the moment, when, when you can see this frightening, frightening thing could happen in two weeks' time and you feel like you're... I'm thinking that particularly the postdocs who may be the first ones crunching the data and can see there's a twitch of something that looks wrong in a data stream. Uh, that's very humanly alarming. And, you know, you need the whole network and support of SPIM to be reminded, here's what we need you to do. Here's where your responsibilities end and try and make it a bit more humanly manageable so we can do our jobs as scientists as best as possible. That's a com completely gripping account of how scientists are actively involved and in having to sort of learn on the job about their role in relation to a very complex set of decisions. I mean, John, how do you feel the kind of the scientific community as a whole has developed its understanding of, of the relationship between ad advice and government during the last couple of years? I think the scientific community as a whole has learned that it is quite complicated but that there is an immense amount of good that can come out of it if it is done well. And I think Julia and others on SPIM set an amazing example of how they could keep producing excellent work, even under the most trying of circumstances that weren't simply scientific circumstances, but were being part of the event that was going on, but that that was absolutely vital because the thing that builds trust is that the information and the evidence that's being given is the best evidence available without any partisan nature to it. Yeah. And that makes my job much easier if it is simply seen, this is the evidence that we have. It is now up to the decision maker to decide what to do based on that evidence. And that that evidence will then change after the decision has been made, because that decision can now be factored into the next set of evidence. And I think that continual update is really important. And for scientists, we often spend our time looking back, but that wasn't an option, particularly at the time when it was the pandemic was in its early stages and there was huge amounts of work to be done by a relatively small number of people at that point, because you know, there were only a small number of people who had the expertise to do it forced by M. It grew, but at that point... Yeah. bringing those people together so that they could answer the next question and not worry about the answer to the previous one is something that was took quite a lot of change for, for many of us in terms of how you do the scientific process. You have to just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, a, it's very interesting to have both your accounts, which are sort of consistent, but obviously you were very heavily involved in slightly different parts of the process. So it's interesting to hear the 
that there's obviously the commonality and the slight different emphasis of, of what's going on. But I just want to sort of final question really to, to Julia, final set of questions, which is really assuming, making the assumption that governments are going to continue to face really terribly challenging and difficult questions in response sometimes to emergencies or just sort of long-running difficult challenges that will require scientific advice. I don't know if you could reflect, Julia, you talked about the kind of the dozens, even, you know, scores, even hundreds of scientists that were sort of involved in direct as part of the, the community contributing modelling. And what's needed for us as a scientific community to really build and maintain that learning that's happened through doing and then sort of set ourselves up so that people are, have the opportunity to, to contribute their, their advice and expertise in, in the future in the best possible way. This is something I've been thinking about a lot for the situation we face. The situation we faced has been unique for, for reasons discussed, but despite that uniqueness, I think there's, there are things that we've certainly learnt from this. The contributions to SPIEM, say you map it as, uh, in academic terms, if someone contributed enough to have their name on a paper, and then you chase it back and say, how many scientists contributed to SPIEM? It is in the hundreds. It's, an, it, it's several hundred. It's absolutely massive. In some sense, those of us who are on SPIEM are just another layer of conduits from uh, research from our wider research networks. And of course, our international research networks, because the, the questions faced are, are quite often the same across countries. And, and we are talking through more normal academic interactions saying, hey, there's an interesting thing from this group that we need to think about within SPIEM in terms of the UK context. So the tree roots extend down a very, very long way in this pandemic, the sheer number of people involved in scientific advice that I could see on just the modelling side was massive. But maybe a slightly surprising thing, not if you're not on SPIEM or you're not one of these modellers, is to understand, of course, everyone desperately wants to help because we're human beings and this is an awful thing, this pandemic, we want to make sure the scientific advice is good. But there was a, a bit of a, a kudos, a thing, if you can get your work through to it has reached SPIEM and you've contributed something useful, you can be proud of that. So there was that sense among the academics contributing. If you could bring something that's even only one part of one paper that contributes to SPIEM, you, you can feel proud, you can value that. Your, your peers regard that as you've done, a, you've done a good thing. So there's that element of it. I think because of this all-encompassing nature of this pandemic, particularly during uh, 2020, a lot of leeway was given to the academics involved to devote their time to this pandemic. That became less true later on, as there was more pressure to get back to our day jobs, or indeed, basically work our day job as well as our uh, contribution to government scientific advice, which for many of us meant that we went from working insane hours during the first phase of the pandemic to continuing to work insane hours, even as scientific advice settled into a sensible rhythm because we were basically working two jobs. And there was many dozens of us doing that. And you can only do that for so long. So one, I don't know if a lesson, because I don't know what the answer is, but somehow there needs to be space made for academics who are still somehow involved in this process. And it runs far deeper than those who are named on SAGE. There are many people who are working almost full-time, contributing valuable things. And if there's some way to identify that, and for those 
universities to release those people, that would be something which I would ask about for the next emergency. How can that work? How can we get that functioning? I completely agree with Julia. I think it's really important that people were given time and continue to be given time to do it. I think there's also the one additional thing is that people need to be recognised afterwards too. I think that postdocs who've spent lots and lots of time on this need to be recognised when they go for their next job that this was a really, really big part of what they did and that they should be rewarded for the work that they have done in the same way as they would be rewarded if they'd spent that same amount of time doing pure research. I, I agree with that 100%. For the more senior scientists involved, some of us have been given very obvious recognitions. For example, I've been given an OBE, which is lovely. But the postdocs in particular, uh, or any of the earlier career scientists who are not on a permanent contract, public recognition, but ac academic metrics don't work that way. They, they will be missing publications because they've worked in a way to optimise what they're contributing to government. Externally, it might look like fab. We can just generate lots of academic papers. That's not how it's worked. We've, we've missed a lot of those opportunities by doing this, particularly the postdocs have missed work they could have done otherwise. However, getting their next job will rely on their CV looking in a very particular way. So that recognition has to work in a way which supports their career fairly for what they've done. That's a very good note to end on because it kind of recognises that contribution that postdocs made, but also you know raises the important question about how career structures will will support and reward them, and that's an open question that need, needs more work. But I think it also points to the fact that for these kind of scientific processes that you've both so scientific advisory processes that you've both so clearly. Kind of discussed and really interestingly talked about your experiences of, you know, will only work if there is a kind of scientific community out there that that is well placed and geared up to and willing to contribute. So we're ending on on the note there that really says that that needs care and attention and, and development, which I think this kind of conversation hopefully will contribute to. So that I just like to say many thanks, John, for joining us. Thank you, and and to Julia, thank you. Pleasure, and it's been fascinating. Thank you. This series on science advice and government is brought to you together with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at Cambridge. To hear more conversations like this, make sure you follow and subscribe on your podcast provider. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSciPol. As always, if you've got any feedback or ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at inquiries at csap .cam.ac.uk. Thanks to our producer, Jessica Foster and researcher, Nick Kostick, and thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.